Thank you, honey. <clears throat> well, what's up, fam? Yes. Hey, it's a beautiful, beautiful Sunday. Happy to see all your smiling faces in the room. Uh, today, I'm real excited uh, to be able to share with you from Scripture. Um, but before I do, I just want to say, Pastor Dan, thank you so much for the opportunity opening your pulpit. It's funny because we do the same thing first service, so I tell them thank you. But I, I'm just telling them thank you again, okay? So just hold on a second. But Pastor Dan, seriously, thank you uh, for trusting me uh, with this thing today. I really, really appreciate it very much. Uh, I said this first service, Pastor Dan, you were like Christmas to me. Thank you. Aw. Yep, yep, special. You're special to me. One time a year, you're special. Uh, I'm just kidding. Anyways, uh, I'm excited to share this morning. Um, I, I forgot to preface it first service, but I'm going to preface it now. Uh, I'm going to say some things today that are going to challenge the way you've thought about Scripture. Uh, I forgot to say that first service, so I'm going to make sure I get the disclaimer out there. There's an asterisk. There's some fine print with this sermon. Uh, I'm going to challenge the way you think. Uh, and the reason being is because I believe that you and I should be able to defend what we believe uh, to be able to say, this is why I believe this. Uh, I grew up in church and always heard phrases, always heard things uh, from the pulpit or from people in the congregation. And I was uh, more of a skeptic than anything else until I started to study it out for myself and I could find reasoning behind everything. So I'm going to say a couple things today that you're going to go, uh, what? That, no, that's not how the Christmas story is. That's not the life of Jesus. Um, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to back it all up with scripture. I'm going to back it all up with my findings and what I see in this, in this wonderful uh, thing of 66 books collaborated together uh, with many different authors, but one person behind it all, his name is Jesus. And so we're going to dive into it, and I'm going to start with the Christmas story because it's Christmas time and it's a cliche thing to do. Uh, but instead of talking about the birth of Jesus today, I want to spend time talking about his adolescent years. It's the part of scripture that we skip over because it's about a sentence long. We have one story about him being 12 years old. That is Jesus being 12 years old. We'll talk about that today. Um, but the next scripture literally is like Jesus is 30 years old and he's doing miracles. Like so there's a whole lot of area that is uh, left unsaid, you could say, in scripture. And so I want to dive into that today. So get going here. Do you remember waking up Christmas morning as a kid? Like just, oh my gosh, like the best thing was to wake up Christmas morning as a kid. Like nothing better. I remember we, we had this door in our hallway. Don't ask why there was a door to a hallway. I have no idea. Okay. I didn't build the house. I didn't fashion it. I didn't do the blueprints. Okay. I have no idea. But there was a door to a hallway. My mom would shut this door and we'd be like crying behind the door at like four o'clock in the morning. Let us out. Let us out. Please. Right. Because we want to get, that's why the door was probably there. My mom was smart. Right? And, and, or it was like, you know, either a, a, a door was there or we moved and then it was like, you know, uh, the um, was wrapping paper. I don't, I don't wrap gifts. My wife does that. I'm terrible at it. But they, they would put like wrapping paper up so we couldn't see what's going on out there. Right? And then finally they would like release the Kraken and we would just bulldoze through the door and we'd go running to the living room and open presents. It was just like the best thing. I don't know if your parents ever did anything like over and above on Christmas morning like that. Um, if you didn't, Sorry that my parents are better. Um, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I'm not saying that Christmas was like a million gifts because it never was. Uh, we, we had little. We never had the Christmas of like, whoa. Like I remember one year I was a kid and uh, I was like, hey, mom, I just want $100 for Christmas. I had no idea what $100 was, right? $100 now is like chump change. It's like, seriously, $100 will get you like a Snickers bar at Albertsons today, right? Like, <laughs> Right? I had no idea, right? So I, I, I asked my mom for, I was, she said, what else do you want? I said, nothing, I just want $100. And so we got $100 that day. And 
That was it. My mom was like, oh, that's amazing. Like Christmas was so easy this year, right? And I had no idea that I let her keep so much extra money. But it, regardless, right? Uh, I'm, what I'm saying is I, I never had like a million gifts, right? It's the, the scene from Home Alone 2 with Macaulay Culkin. And his, he gets sent to New York. His family gets sent to Florida. They finally reunite. It's all jubilee and happiness. And they wind up there in New York all together. And they wake up Christmas morning. And the toy shop guy brought over like a gazillion gifts in their suite at the Plaza Hotel. And their suite, the, the living room itself at the Plaza Hotel was like the size of most of our houses, right? And it's just packed with presents, right? It's like, that was the scene growing up that I was like, I want my Christmas to look like that, right? Like, I wanted that big time, right? When you were a kid, I'm sure that you did too. I've never had a Christmas that looked like that. I never will have a Christmas that looks like that, frankly now, because I don't want that. But beyond that, I don't want my kids to have a Christmas like that. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I heard someone say the other day, my kids aren't spoiled, they're blessed. Uh, my kids aren't spoiled. I want my kids to be blessed. Uh, but I'm going to be smart about it. Like Pastor talked about last week, I'm going to do it within my own means, right? I'm going to live within that and be comfortable with that, right? I'm not going to do something stupid, but I, I want to live wisely. But I also want my kids to be blessed, 100%. I want my kids to wake up Christmas morning excited about the day. I do, because I love my kids, right? So, uh, but I want my kids to understand, though, beyond that is quality, not quantity, I want my kids to understand the quality of what they're getting, not just quantity. You know, more is not always better. Uh, we, we say this as a worship team, less is more and more is better. So play less, just sit back with it. Don't, don't play above and beyond what you need to. Don't do in life beyond what you need to. Find the quality that you're looking for and stick in that vein. Um, so as, as I look at Christmas though, essentially the very first Christmas was about quality, not quantity. That, that, that's the foundation of what we call Christmas today. It was quality, not quantity. See, the day that Jesus was born, it carries so much significance because he wasn't born into a palace with quantity. Yeah. He, he wasn't born with all this stuff around him. He was instead born in what you and I would call a modern day stable. It was a basement of someone's house uh, that they brought the animals in when it was cold. So he's born in this little basement Surrounded by animals and they have a manger, so they're able to lay Jesus in the manger, right? He's not born into a palace and with plenty around him. He's born with quality, not quantity. Amen. And so he's born in this little town called Bethlehem. You know the stories. You've heard of Christmas before. You know he was born in Bethlehem. However, he wasn't raised in Bethlehem. He was raised in a city called Nazareth. Right? His hometown would have been Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Example, I am born in, I was born, I am born, I was born in Tampa Bay, Florida, right? However, my hometown where I grew up is Sacramento, California. There you go. Sorry. Sacramento, California. I have to whisper it. I'm, I'm, I'm in Idaho now. I'm from California, okay? I have to whisper that. I don't want to get jumped in the parking lot on my way home today, right? But... My hometown is Sacramento. That's where I was raised. That's where I'm from. Uh, and my hometown, just like your hometown, it caused some personality traits inside of you. That's why some of you are really weird, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. The city, the town that you grew up in, it has a culture of its own. You're influenced by that culture. Good or bad, you are influenced by the culture being around you. So being from Sacramento, um, I learned to embrace a lot of different cultures from a young age. 
I mean, there's all types of different people living in Sacramento. I grew up with people who didn't look like me. My best friends were usually a different skin color than I am, uh, and their parents made some really bad smelling food. (laughs) I remember that, right? To this day, I will not eat curry. I I just cannot stand the smell of curry, right? I smelled curry everywhere in Sacramento. I could not stand it. But either way, right, we, we grew up in our hometown, and you were influenced by that town. Sacramento had enough crime to make it scary, but enough of the middle-class suburbs to make it feel safe. And that's why during my party years, I had no problem walking alone through downtown Sacramento at one o'clock in the morning. I wasn't afraid of it. I felt safe. I knew it was dangerous, but I felt safe. It was my hometown. I knew what was expected there. I knew what was going on, right? And so Jesus grows up in Nazareth. To say that Jesus was not influenced by Nazareth would be a failure. You cannot accept that Jesus is from Nazareth and expect that he was not influenced by the culture and the day and the age of Nazareth. I'm not saying he he committed sin, right? Influence is not sin. Influence is not negative. Influence just means you're gaining an understanding of what's going on around you. Jesus had to learn what was positive and negative influence. You know, I I think what's so funny is that we look in scripture, right? And we read the Christmas story. And then we read about Jesus being 12 years old, going to Jerusalem, his parents losing him. And the very next chapter, all of a sudden, Jesus is 30 years old, turning water into wine and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Like, it's like, what just happened? Like, we just skipped a whole lot of Jesus's life. I think we forget that Jesus had to grow up because we just skip over it so quickly. It's literally a verse or two, and we're on to the next story about what Jesus is doing in his life. It's like, hold on a second. What is going on with Jesus here? And we forget that Jesus was a kid. He had to grow up. Jesus had to mature. Jesus had to learn social cues. He had to learn when it's appropriate and inappropriate to talk to your parents. Maybe you're interrupting. I'm not saying Jesus ever interrupted. He is, he is God without measure, 100%. However, I think he did have to learn correct social cues. Pastor loves this one. He had to learn sarcasm. Right? He had to learn when someone was serious and when someone was being funny or telling a joke. Jesus had to learn people just like you and I. He had to sit down with Mary and Joseph and learn how to read and write just like you and I, right? That Jesus had to grow up and it's so easy to just kind of skim through these, these verses and forget that. Jesus was human. He was a kid at one point. He was a teenager, a smelly preteen at one point he was. <laughs> Jesus had to grow up. That's the reality of it. And I think we forget that. But he had to learn how to interact with people. He had, like I said, he had to learn good influence and what is negative influence. And he had to shun the negative and accept the good. See, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. The only difference between you and him and I and him is that he had the Holy Spirit without measure from birth. His nature was not sin nature. His nature was holy. That's the only difference between him and you or him and I. That's the only difference right there, right? And again, influence is not a negative thing. Jesus is gaining the understanding of who people are because of the influences around him and where he grew up. So Jesus, because of his hometown, had gained some understanding of who people are and how people interact with one another. So I'm gonna dive into it today. I'm gonna really hone in on Nazareth, on where Jesus is from, where he grew up, And I'm going to show you how those characteristic traits or those personality traits that Jesus was influenced by in the city of Nazareth impacted him later on in life. And how you see, oh my gosh, if Jesus would have been from anywhere else, he wouldn't have spoke like or talked like that. 
he gained some personality traits, some characteristic traits from his city. So I want to start small. Uh, today, I'm going I'm to start in the home life of Jesus. I'm actually going to start in Bethlehem of who Jesus was, what his home life was like with Mary and Joseph. And then as they moved to Nazareth, and they, they, I want to take a broader look at what his church life was like on what's going on in the city of Nazareth when it comes to church, because church is like important, obviously, right? And then I want to look at the city. So we're going to take a step bigger and look at the city as a whole, see what the population looks like, see what the culture was like. And then I want a broad look. The final point today, the fourth point, is a broad look of what the city was known for. So we're going to start small and we're going to get extremely broad, okay? So let's dive into it. Let's get after it. Starting small, let's talk about the home life of Jesus, his adolescent years. Luke chapter two, verses four through seven. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So here we are. This is the Christmas, the classic story that we all know. Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem. While they're in Bethlehem, Jesus arrives on the scene. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, born to Mary and Joseph. Well, thinking logically, I'm sure that God the Father sent Jesus, his one and only son, to a house with plenty. I'm sure of it that God would send his son to a place with tons of money, totally taken care of. Every birthday that Christmas comes around, he gets a ton of presents, overwhelming family support in the house of Mary and Joseph. I'm sure that's where God would send his son. I mean, let's look at it. Mary and Joseph must have been absolutely the most perfect people on the planet earth to raise Jesus, right? If God the Father chose them, certainly they must be really good with every area of their life. They must be stellar people, right? They must be just on another level. Get on my level, homie. They walked around saying, right? <laughs> the only problem is that Mary and Joseph didn't have any money. We got no money, right? They, they didn't have any prestige. They had nothing. They didn't have the leadership skills required to be a parent. Straight up, Mary is like 12 years old. 13 years old at max. That, that's how old she is. Do you think she has the leadership skills to be a mother? No, no. Heck no, right? And, and then because of their premarital baby, they're rejected by society. So they don't have overwhelming family support. They barely have each other. Like Joseph tried to leave. It was like, I'm out of this, man. This is crazy. Hey, he's gone, right? He, he wants out. Luckily, the angel Gabriel shows up to him and is like, hey, hold on. She's with child because of me, right? Like, or because of the Lord, right? It's just a crazy scenario here that God would choose these two very imperfect, broken people to raise his one and only son, his priceless son, that he would choose these broke people to do it, right? You say, Stevie, you, you can't say Jesus was broke. He's the king of kings. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's, that's fine. You want to take those scriptures out of context and use them a different way? That's fine, right? You say, Jesus can't be poor. I'm telling you right now, Jesus was broke. Jesus was a broke little boy. Like he had no money. Mom and dad had no money. And I'm gonna back it up with scripture right now. Are you waiting for it? Are you ready for it? Here we go. Luke chapter two, verses 20 through two through 24. This is where the today's sermon came from. 
because I read this and I went, <gasps> right, here we go. And when the days for purification according to the law of Moses were completed. What are the days for purification? We'll pause there. Uh, in the law of Moses and the, the Ten Commandments, all the stuff in the Old Testament, uh, there was a law that said after a woman gave birth, she would have to wait for 40 days to become clean according to the law and also for her body to heal. Let's be real here, right? And then after that 40 days, they would travel to Jerusalem with the baby and they would dedicate the baby to the Lord there after the 40 days, okay? So they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. Right here, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I read that scripture I was studying for this, today's sermon and this is where ser the sermon came from because I stopped and I said, that's not what Leviticus says. I was like, that's, that's not at all what Leviticus says. It, that's a portion. Of, I'm not saying there's an error in scripture. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's more to the story than that. Yeah. There's a whole lot more to the story than two young turtle doves or two young pigeons. Yeah. The, the Bible doesn't say just that phrase. The, the Bible says a whole lot more. And when Luke, the writer of these verses, penned this, he was saying a whole lot to the people who were reading at this time, right? He, he, here's the problem here in America. We, we, we read the scripture for what it is. We just read it and say, okay, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. Next verse. However, when the readers originally wrote this, after, uh, read this, after Luke penned those words, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, all of them would have gone, oh, no. You're telling me that Jesus is on the bottom of the bucket social status? You're telling me that Jesus is the bottom of the totem pole? There's no way that the King of Kings, that the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, the light for humanity, there's no way that Mary and Joseph would bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. There's no way. That was their reaction when they would have read Luke chapter two. They would have said, no way. There's no way that the Messiah can be broke like that. There's just no possible way. Luke knew exactly what he was doing. He was saying so much without ever saying anything. He, all he had to say was two young, two young pigeons and everyone went, oh, no, right? We miss out on it. So my, my quest for this and the reason for today's sermon is what does Leviticus chapter 12 say then? Here it is, verses six through eight. When the days of her purification are completed, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb, for a burnt offering and a young single pigeon for, or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. Right there, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she can bring this. That's what Luke was saying. She's too broke to bring a lamb. She brought the lamb but she couldn't afford a lamb. She showed up with the sacrifice, but she couldn't afford a sacrifice. This is that, 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 right, that, that right there, you could stop on that and preach a whole sermon right there on what she had in her possession by bringing the lamb to a lamb sacrifice. So Jesus' parents chosen by God for one of the most difficult tasks you could imagine they were, humanly speaking, ill-equipped for the job. I'm telling you right now, I don't know what God has called you to do in your workplace or you to do in your household or you to do specifically in the areas of your lives, but I'm gonna tell you right now, you are ill-equipped for the job. If God would choose Mary and Joseph 
two very ill-equipped people to raise his son. I'm telling you right now, you are too ill-equipped to do anything he's asking you to do. I am too ill-equipped for anything he's asking me to do. If you think that, oh, I got it, I can take care of it, there's a problem. The word is I. No, he can take care of it. He can do it. I want to be ill-equipped for the job because in being ill-equipped, I find a strength that I did not know I had. His name is Jesus. So Jesus did not grow up in abundance. Why? Because if he had to be tested in every way that you and I were as a human, then he would have to understand need. And he'd have to learn how to be content. Jesus had to learn to be content. That amazes me when I think of him, when I think of who he is. Jesus can relate to you in your need because he grew up in need. That's how he grew up. His adolescent years, his early childhood years, he, bro- he grew, up, grew up in need. And either way, you can be poor in money or you can be poor in spirit. Jesus addresses that in, Ma- in Matthew chapter five. You can be poor in money or poor in spirit. It doesn't matter. He understands need. He understands how to fulfill need. He knows how to come into your situation, the uncomfortable places of your life because of how he was raised. He understands what it feels like to be in need. So the next time you get that paycheck, it comes in and you go, I got all these bills. I got all these things going on and it's Christmas time right now. God, I need help. He understands and he can relate to your need. I know what it feels like to be in need and that's what makes him all the more loving and sympathetic to your situation. So if you're in a place of need this morning, I'm telling you right now, you are in a really good place. To be in a place of need, that means that God is right there and sympathetic to your situation. He is with you. He understands our need because he grew up in need. So we started, that's his home life. That's his early, early childhood years after he was born, growing up in need. Um, there, was, there was a point in time where Jesus did travel to Egypt they ran away for their lives. And that's where it gets a little interesting on this whole money topic because you're like, oh, but they can run away and live in Egypt. Obviously they had money. Actually, uh, the, the magi and those wise guys showed up, the, the, the wise men, right? And they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that actually funded their trip to Egypt and probably even funded their trip back to Nazareth. So Jesus didn't have money. Just like, oh, I got so much money. It's falling out of my pockets. My tunic here is just so heavy. No, they were struggling to get by. The wise men showed up at just the right time when Jesus is two or three years old and they flee to Egypt and flee back to Nazareth a few years later. It was probably paid for by the wise men and the gift they brought. So just to settle that dispute there. So we started small. That's his home life. Let's get into what his church life was like for Jesus. What was it like going to the synagogue, growing up in Nazareth? What was the the religious presence of the city? Well, there was hardly none. Nazareth was known for being a weak religious town. It didn't have a strong enough Jewish population or priests in the synagogue uh, to keep the culture per se godly. There, there was not enough of them doing anything in the city, right? Let me just say this. Nobody drove to Nazareth for church, right? Like nowadays, like you'll live in Cuna, but you'll drive to like Boise for church or you'll live in Boise and drive to Cuna for church. Like it, it kind of amazes me. It's kind of funny, but it's because like, you're like, oh man, that church is just like, that's my church. Like that's my place. The worship is awesome. Right, the preachers just bring the word every week. I feel so convicted every single time, right? It's just like, oh, that's church. I love church, right? Nobody drove to Nazareth because church was hopping. The worship team's terrible, right? The preacher was mundane. It was just like, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 45, right? Like, come on, 
man, like, give me something. Like, there was nothing there, right? Nobody drove to church or synagogue or temple in Nazareth. It wasn't the place to be. But the sad part is that the church, the synagogue, the temple was having zero impact on the city. That's the problem. There was zero impact. There was no religious presence strong enough to help the people of the city hear that a savior is coming, that a Messiah, again, this is Old Testament, you have to think that way. There's a Messiah is coming. There's no presence of that in the city. There's some Jews there. There's some, there's some Hebrew men and women who are you know, raised in it and they have it and they bring it there, but it's not strong enough to sustain in this little city called Nazareth. And God in heaven saw fit to send Jesus to a weak religious place. Hold on a second. If you're raising a son to be savior of the world, you don't send him to Nazareth to learn scripture. You send him to Jerusalem to learn scripture. Why would God call Jesus to Nazareth? Why, why, would, say, why would God say, Joseph, you need to live in Nazareth, bro? If, if God is trying to raise up a Messiah, he needs to be in Jerusalem. Would you, wouldn't you? I mean, that's just logically thinking, right? Well, God doesn't do it that way. God chose a different way to do it. The reason I believe is that because religion is man's attempt to impress God. And God is looking for the exact opposite in us. He's looking for us to be impressed by him. He's looking for us to sit back and rest in his presence and be amazed at his goodness. That's what God is looking for from you. I'm telling you right now, if you're, if you're in this building today and you've been trying to think, oh man, I wanna get to heaven, I gotta impress God enough to get to heaven, you are on the wrong train. You don't need to impress God to do anything. Your gifts, your abilities, he gave you those gifts and abilities. You don't need to impress him with him. I don't get on a platform to speak or to preach or to play guitar or to lead people to impress you or to impress him. I do it because, man, I love him. I do it because I'm infatuated with who he is and what he's done for me. I don't care if I ever get off this platform again and someone says, hey, that was a great sermon. I, that's not what I'm going for. I'm not looking to impress. I'm not looking to impress him. Besides, if he were to be on a platform and to speak, he would do way better than me anyways. I can't impress him with my preaching. I can't impress him with my guitar playing. I, I can't do it. But I can be infatuated with him. I can sit back and just enjoy his presence. That I can do. And that's what he's looking for from you today. All right? He's not looking for you to impress him. So the culture of the city that Jesus grows up in doesn't have this impressive culture to look at when it comes to religion. Like, oh man, if we could just have church like Nazareth has church. Oh, and Jesus attended that church, right? It didn't have the religious mindsets in, in Nazareth that they had in Jerusalem. Everything revolved around the temple. Everything was about what's going on in the synagogue. Everything is about what's going on with the high priest. But in Nazareth, no, a completely different way of thinking. Jesus was influenced by this. This city had an influence on our Savior. I believe this is why Jesus always spoke in parables. Why? Because church for him was a little different. You're surrounded by people. There's no high priest getting up there and demanding what, what ways we're supposed to go and what things we're supposed to do. It was more of people interacting with one another. It was Jews interacting with sinners. And Jesus is there and he's learning this contrast between light and dark and good and evil. And he's being raised in this society of that. And he's able to find pictures. He's able to find the human condition and say, actually, this is what it looks like. And, 
That's why he spoke in parables so much later on in life, because he understood humans. He didn't understand just simple religion or complex religion, really, of the day. He understood people. And if Jesus stands up and says, hey, let me tell you a story. There's a, there's a man, and he goes this, and he does this, and he does this, and he does all these parables through the Gospels. This is why Jesus understood the human condition, because he was surrounded by people, not religion. If he would have been raised in Jerusalem, he would have become a Pharisee. He would have been rude, cutthroat. Instead, he's Jesus, our Savior, loving and accepting. Why? Because of the city he grew up in. Jesus had a different approach to clean and unclean. The Pharisees were driven crazy by this. So much so that Jesus would show up to Jerusalem and he'd go and have dinner with a sinner. What? And the Pharisees asked this. You can read it over and over and over again in Scripture. How can he eat with sinners? Because it's how he was raised. He was raised in Nazareth. Sinner and Jew, where were buddies? This is the reality of it. They're friends. And so Jesus is hanging out with these sinners in Jerusalem because of the culture that he brought with him from Nazareth. And the Pharisees are having a heyday with it. They can't stand that a man who claims to be the Messiah would sit down with such scum. This is our Savior. The city that he's from helped shape his loving, inclusive atmosphere and attitude. This is who he was. And Jesus came in direct combat with the religious norms of Jerusalem. And it had become such a man-made religion that Jesus, let me show you a different way, one that is heaven-made. Let me open your closed minds to what God really set up. And so there's a high priest in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death, and he's doing nothing to confront the issues of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's letting them argue, and nothing's changing. Nothing is happening. And so finally, they, they eventually crucified Jesus. We all know that story as well. But God is saying, okay, if this high priest in Jerusalem isn't going to do anything, then I'm going to need a new high priest. Not a high priest for the religious, a high priest for everyone. One who is approachable by any person. One who can be uh, talked to by any person. One who's going to love every person. Because the high priest in Jerusalem obviously wasn't doing his job. And so God calls Jesus to become our high priest. In scripture, this is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So Jesus becomes our high priest. However, as you study scripture, again, I told you disclaimer. As you spend time studying the word of God and what it takes to become a high priest, you'll have a hard time connecting a few dots here. How can Jesus become the high priest? According to scripture, uh, it's not there, right? Hey, to become a high priest, you gotta go to school. We have no record of Jesus ever going to school. We have no record of Jesus ever learning scripture, sitting under a teacher. We, we have no record of that. We have a one record at 12 years old, and it's more of a, he's having a debate with the teachers. It's, it's less of like, oh, please, let me hear you out on this. It's more of like, actually, no, you're wrong, bro. This is why, right? He, that's the only really reference we have to Jesus sitting under a teacher is him yeah. correcting the teacher, <laughs> right? The high priest is one who handles sacrifices, who atones for sin or covers for sin. He keeps things in order in the city. He acts as a spokesperson for God and he primarily works his duties in the synagogue or in the temple. 
However, we have no record of anybody ever bringing a sacrifice to Jesus, right? Nobody ever walks up to Jesus in a crowd and is like, hey, here's two pigeons. Would you please make the sacrifice for me? We have no reference of Jesus ever making any sacrifice in scripture, right? We have, we have no record of Jesus doing anything uh, out of the norm other than kind of flipping tables. Like he, he never worked in the synagogue. He never worked in the temple. Yeah, he showed up and he taught, but he didn't earn a living through that. He, he didn't get paid by the temple because he worked at the temple. If anything, he was kicked out of temples all the time. He was constantly kicked out of church, constantly. He, he never worked in a temple. We never have record of him going to school, learn scriptures. We have no record of people bringing sacrifices to him. So how can he become the high priest if he's not doing any of the priest things? And the main issue that I can take it even a step further is that traditionally to be a high priest, you have to trace your genealogy back to Aaron, the first high priest. This is the time of Moses in the book of Exodus, which we're studying on Wednesday nights. You should get here Wednesday nights. We're studying through Exodus right now. This is, this is where Aaron was set up as the original high priest. So you have to trace your genealogy back to Aaron. Jesus can't do that, right? And most likely your dad had to be a high priest. So beyond that, I can take it a step further. Hold on a second. You have to live in Jerusalem to be a high priest. Jesus lives in Nazareth. How in the world can this guy become the high priest of all if he doesn't have any of the markers checked off? There's a problem there when you start studying scripture. You have to really look and see what is going on and how Jesus can become our high priest, even according to what I've already brought up to you. Right? So God the Father in his infinite wisdom had the high priest of all humanity raised by a no-name guy in a no-name city. Right? The only problem is that Joseph wasn't Jesus' daddy. Joseph is from the line of David, which Jesus needed to be from the line of David. Mary actually also is from the line of David as well. So if you want to argue, well, Jesus was a stepdad then, so Jesus isn't from the line of David. Mary was. So either way. So he comes from a king's line already, right? And God, the, his father, is the highest of priests. There is no one higher than God. He is the priest. Like 100%, he is the priest, right? Jesus is the sacrifice. So nobody had to bring sacrifices to him. He is the sacrifice. He is the lamb who gets sacrificed for the sins of the world. He's the word made flesh. He didn't need someone to show him. He is the word made flesh. He didn't need someone to teach him what it was. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that your Holy Spirit is your teacher. So if he's got the Holy Spirit without measure, he's teaching him the scripture. And his father is God in heaven is from heavenly Jerusalem. Not the one made by man, but the one made by God in heaven. So Jesus does live in Jerusalem, the heavenly one. So therefore Jesus knocks all the requirements of becoming a high priest because of those, those situations right there. Jesus becomes the high priest of all, not just those of the Jewish religion. It's of a heavenly kingdom. It's higher than what the world has set up. Jesus is our high priest. His hometown shows us that he's not concerned with religion, but being amongst the people, being amongst the sinners, being around the people who don't believe like he does, right? That is what church life was like for Jesus. He had to realize who he was. He had to grow up in it to become the high priest. But what is the reason for this weak religious presence? Let's take it a step further now, looking at overall broad, look at the city. What's the, what's the reason for a weak religious presence in the city? It's the Gentile population. 
an overwhelming Gentile population. What is a Gentile? A Gentile is anybody who is not a Jew. So anybody who's not a Jew, there it is, right? That's a Gentile. One thing you and I must understand when we're reading scripture is that the amount of real racism and division amongst people in biblical times. That is one thing that you cannot get away from. If you read these scriptures and it says any detail about someone's life, if they were a Gentile, if they were a Hittite or a Shittite or any other ite, any other things, it was because of racism. I'm not saying that God is racist. Far from it. That's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the people of the day and the age of when these words were penned were very racist. They wanted nothing to do with you if you were of a different culture. That's why when they would make a covenant with another city, it was a really big deal. Like, hey, we're, we're in agreement together not to attack each other, even though I hate you and you hate me. But we're gonna, you're going to defend each other because we both want the freedoms that we have in our, in our areas, right? Racism was a very big deal. If you read these scriptures and you see any detail about someone, it's because the writer was trying to let you know that they were either accepted or rejected with what's going on. With that one detail of what race they were or where they were from. If it's giving you any detail about that in scripture, you can know right away it's because people of the day and age were racist. That is something you cannot get away from when you read the Bible. It was really a, a hatred for one another. So Jesus grows up in Nazareth and it's got this huge Gentile population. It's got Jews, it's got Gentiles. It's, that's a problem because of this racism, right? However, in Nazareth, cultural differences were seen as totally normal and accepted. Oh, you're of that race, you're of that culture? Totally cool, awesome, sounds good. Bring it on, I'm glad you're here. It was accepted. You take that same attitude to Jerusalem and you got a problem. It wasn't accepted there. However, in Nazareth, that was the norm. It, it, they were excited to be together, to disagree on what was truth, yet still hang out together and have dinner. They, 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 it was the norm. So Jesus grew up in a city where the norm was inclusiveness. And we've already talked about that a little bit today. Right? Culture had less of an impact on if someone was accepted or not. What race you were, it was less of an impact. It was, it was a big deal. Move it aside. It wasn't the main discussion at dinner every night. They're moving on from it. They just wanted to be around. So he's raised in this melting pot of a city. Combined with the love of God inside of him, he soon learned how to love those who were different than him. Soon learned how to embrace those who were different, who believed different, who looked different, talked different. All the differences you could imagine, they were different. And Jesus found it to be normal to sit down and have dinner with him. He found it normal to sit down and hang out with him. I think this is what showed that God's love went to the Gentiles. It went to those who weren't the Jews. Those who didn't spend all those years, you know, for asking for forgiveness and running back to him and then running to idols and then running back to him. He, he didn't, they didn't spend all that time doing that. And Jesus said, you're just as valuable. You're, you're just as amazing to me. You're just as priceless to me as the Jews are. And this is where we see the love of God get expounded upon to every generation, to every race, to every tribe, to every tongue. That's why it says that in the book of Matthew. That's what Jesus came from. He grew up in the melting pot of the city. And they were enraged when he took this to Jerusalem. How can he sit and eat with sinners? How could he do that? Because his hometown told him to. His hometown told him to embrace people who are different. We should be embracing people who are different. I love when I meet someone who doesn't believe like me. I love it. It's like the best thing in the world, especially when I tell them I'm a pastor. 
oh man, it's like the greatest thing in the world. They're like, stop cussing, like right away. I'm so sorry, I haven't been in church in a long time. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I really don't care. I, I just, how, how's your day going? Are you having a good day? Awesome. Like that's, that's what I care about. I care about you as a person. I don't care about you behaving properly around me as a pastor. I don't care about that. I, I care about you being you and me connecting with the real you. That's what I care about. And that's what Jesus is all about. Connecting with you, the real you, right? And what I find so amazing, I've said this before, it's one of my most favorite things to think about with Jesus. Those who were most comfortable in the temple were least comfortable around Jesus. And those who were the most uncomfortable in the temple were most comfortable around Jesus. Why? Because of his hometown. Because of the influence of his city. Every person was of value. Every person was important. Every person was special. And Jesus learned that from a young age. Embrace the people who are different than you. And that is why the love of God is sent to every single one of us today because of the hometown of Jesus. It was really a prophecy of what Jesus would be doing, taking salvation to everyone. So Jesus was raised with these people who are different. And when Jesus finally was rejected by the Jews and they called for his crucifixion, Jesus officially became the savior to the Gentiles when the Jews finally shunned him completely. And the Gentiles said, we need a savior, we'll take you. Absolutely. His hometown prophesied he was gonna take salvation to the world. And finally, very broad, as broad as I can get, the social status of the city. What was the city known for? Right, we've talked about his home life. We've talked about his church life. We've talked about the city life. I wanna talk now, very broad. What was the city known for? Well, the status of the city was that it was nothing of importance. It was nothing special. Nothing significant happens in, in Nazareth, right? It, it, that's how it was known. You think of Cuna, dairy farm, all the way, 100% dairy farm. Everyone knows dairy farm, right? That, that's just what you think of when you think of Cuna. It's just, you know, the high school and there it is. It's the, the, the dairy farm is right next to the high school. There you go. That's what people think of. So when they thought of Nazareth, they just thought nothing of it. Like there wasn't anything good enough to even mention. We at least have a dairy farm, right? Like, right? Go, go big K, let's go, right? <clears throat> But nothing significant comes from Nazareth. That, that was the status of it. That's how people knew it. it. It's the weakness of the religion in the city. It's the Gentile and Jewish mashup that people cannot stand because of the racism of the day. It was the culture of just, hey, cool, life is just good. We're just living in here, having a good time, planting some corn, let's go, right? It was, it was nothing significant. However, one of Jesus' own disciples even takes a dig at Jesus one time. He even says, no, 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 hold on a second, hold on a second. You're telling me that Jesus is from Nazareth? And he laughs. He can't stand it, right? John chapter one, check this out. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, if it's telling you about where someone is from, it's because of the cultural differences of the day. The son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see it's the greatest thing you could ever imagine coming from Nazareth. There was zero expectation for Nazareth to ever do anything amazing. There was zero expectation that Nazareth would ever be on the headline news. It just wasn't happening. Nothing was going on in Nazareth, but little did that little city know what was so precious behind its walls. That the greatest gift of all, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, of the world was being raised in this city where nothing special comes from. First Corinthians chapter one breaks it down even better for us. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Nazareth, Nazareth is known for no importance until from it came the most important gift to humanity. That the foolish thing of the world would provide the most wise thing of the world. That the thing of no importance would provide the most importance to the world. The savior, the gift to humans. That a savior would be born in Bethlehem, be raised in Nazareth to bring healing to the world. Jesus is the greatest gift of Christmas because he is for everyone. It's not quantity, but it's quality. It's one man born of a virgin to come and bring salvation into our lives. What type of quality that is, what type of significance that is. It's not the home alone every year with Christmas presents piled to the ceiling. Instead, it's one gift that seems so small and insignificant, but it's the greatest thing that you could ever imagine. For all eternity, we are saved because Nazareth did not withhold back its savior. The hometown of Jesus not only influenced Jesus, it was a prophetic sign that salvation is for all. That from this town, something significant would come. My question today, as we learn from the hometown of Nazareth, I compare it to our city here in Cuna. Can anything significant come from Cuna? Let's just stop and pause for just a second. We're a small little town. On the grand scheme of things, no. However, when people would come together, devoted to Jesus, devoted to God, I think something of great significance can come from our town. I think something of great significance of revival can come from this town. I say miracles can come from this town. I think people can be freed, set free, addictions broken, miracles happening, people walking in the life that God has given them. Why? Because a group of people came together, a little mosh pit of people from all over the place, much like Nazareth. And God says, from here, I'm going to call something really significant. And what, this is my challenge to you. I have no call or response to this. We'll get to it in a second here. But this is my challenge for you today is Christmas is the easiest time to invite someone to church. Like, let's be real. Everyone can go to church on Christmas. And my challenge to you is, would you turn this building into Nazareth next week? Just a mosh pit of people. People who don't believe like us. People who don't look like us. People who don't talk like us. I'm asking you for this challenge to turn this place into Nazareth so they could hear of a savior who came for all of us. Not so that we can say, oh yeah, we had this many people on Christmas Sunday. That's like the furthest thing from what we're after. We're after influence. We're after impacting people with the gospel of Jesus. That's what we are about here at Change Life Church. Our name is Change Life Church, not Butts in Seat Church. Okay? I wanna see people changed. I wanna see people set free. My challenge to you is, would you invite someone this upcoming Sunday, 9 and 11 a.m., December 18th? Get someone here with you. I understand people are gonna say no. Like, oh, I already have a church. It's fine, ours is better, come with me, okay? And I'm just kidding, don't do that. But invite someone, this is easy. Just invite someone to church and say, hey, we, just, hey, we, got, we got church going on, it's Christmas time. You guys, bring your family, let's go to church. 
This is the easiest thing you can do. I, I want our church to look like Nazareth. You don't have to believe to belong here. You're not going to get shunned if you believe differently. I brought up subjects today, things today that people go, oh, hold on a second, that you're contradicting scripture, right? No, actually, I didn't at all, but it sounded like it, right? But what I'm getting at is people shouldn't believe like us. That means we have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus to go and make disciples, to neglect what we think church should look like and turn it into Nazareth. It should be a mash pit of people. That's what it should be. People who don't believe and look like and sound like and talk like us. I, I, I tell people this all the time as, as I talk with other youth pastors and I talk with young adults, pastors and whatever. I tell them, your goal should be to hear cuss words. That's what you should hear. You do a youth event, you do a young adults event, you do an adult event. Here it is. Your goal should be to hear the cuss words. That's because if you're hearing cuss words, you're hearing people who are probably really struggling in life. I'm not saying if you cuss, you have a bad time. Okay, that's what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but if they talk differently than you, you got the right people around you. Right. I'm sure when Jesus sat down with sinners, he heard a few cuss words. And guess what? He didn't go, oh, how dare you in my presence? He didn't do that. Why? It's from Nazareth. Yep. Nazareth boys don't do that. <laughs> that was pretty good. I'm just saying that was pretty good. <clears throat> Nazareth boys don't do that, right? Yeah, thank you. Jesus is accepting. I didn't say he condones. He accepts. I'm asking you, would you turn this place into Nazareth next week? So Jesus can show them that he accepts them, that he loves them. Because one day you were of Nazareth. You were far away. You were the one talking crazy, doing crazy things. I know I was until one day I met a savior from the town of Nazareth. And I'm so thankful that I did. My question though today is, is that you? Are you the one from Nazareth today? You're far from God. You've been away from him. You haven't dedicated your life to him. You never said, Jesus, you are my Lord. You've never asked him to forgive you of what you've done. You're in this room today, every head bowed, every eye closed in here today. You're from Nazareth. Would you please raise your hand and make the best decision of your life today? Anybody in this room? Anyone? One last call, anyone? All right. See, that makes me excited that no one raises their hands because it's like, yeah, it's awesome. We're all, we're all right with God, but at the same time, it breaks my heart. I said at first service too, the greatest thing about church is people getting saved. And as long as there are empty seats, there's room for someone else who needs to hear what you just heard today. Yeah. Let's turn this place into Nazareth next week. Let's have hands go up of people saying, I'm ready to commit my life to Jesus. Let me pray for you as we go. Father, we worship you and we praise your mighty name. There's no one, no one God like you. And Father, what I'm asking for today is that you would help us to move forward from this place today, understanding Jesus a little bit better of who you are and how you are called to the Gentiles and how you've now called us to reach those who don't believe like us, look like us, talk like us, sound like us, nothing. God, I ask that you would help us to reach people of this city. CUNA, that something great would be called from you is what I declare today. That a revival of your spirit, of your glory, of your presence, God, would pour out on this city through your people. We love you, we worship you. I pray we have a great time this Christmas season. I pray for every home represented in this building today. That your hand of blessing for quality 
would be on every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.